This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative, and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. Hey there, listener. And welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. My name's Nico, and as usual, I'm here with my good friend and co-host Sam. And this is our first book review in our series on investing. And we have just finished talking to my daughter about the economy, A Brief History of Capitalism, written by Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis Varoufakis is a Greek-Australian economist and politician. He uh, initially started his career in academia. He has a PhD in economics, I think. And... In 2012, he became the economist in residence at Valve, uh, which is of particular interest of me because I have a lot of interest in the gaming space. And so Valve is one of the biggest gaming companies out there. And there he researched the virtual economy of the Steam digital delivery platform. If you play games on a Windows PC, you very likely know what Steam is. And so that's actually where I knew him from initially. When I saw that he wrote a book about the economy, I was immediately interested Uh, But anyway, after his time at Steam, he became the Greek Minister of Finance for a few months. And so the book, as the title suggests, is written as a letter to his teenage daughter. And very uh, surprisingly, in my opinion, he wrote it in nine days only. So Mm. it feels like this is just him putting his thoughts to paper on, you know, the economy and how he looks at capitalism. And so it's throughout the book, Varoufakis wears his expertise lightly. And he does really write as a parent whose aim is to instruct his daughter on the fundamental questions and concepts around the economy and capitalism, etc. Yeah, I think what I really like around the fact that it took him nine days is the importance of knowing exactly who you're writing for. And then when you do become like an expert or something, you are just able to express something clearly. And he kind of knows exactly how the economy works in all these different ways and how to just make that simple for someone. It wasn't that difficult for him to just say Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And you're like, mm. oh, if only you knew this, why aren't your teachers teaching you these things? And it's mm. just all that stuff that you should sort of know about why does the world work in these ways and what does the economy mean when people sort of study yeah, economics and stuff. I tried to speak to my uni friends like, what do you do on an economics degree or something? And I still don't really know. <laughs> and, but then like, this was much more useful, like main questions that he answers around like, why do things make profit and how can you sort of, how can wealth exist without debt? and why do economic crises happen? And you're like, this is really useful to learn. Mm, yeah, very true. Fully agree. I, um, I myself studied economics, so I have like a six year, I have two master's degrees <laughs> in business and economics. Supposedly, I would have known all of this. And I'm going to be completely honest. It's not that I learned so many crazy new things, but he did give me a few insights and I did learn like how stuff got started. Um, mm. and, and so I'm kind of proud of the framework that I started building in my head uh, with our last episode, you know, around, you know, yeah, the whole yeah. world revolves around creating value and the way you store value is important and all that stuff. And I think this is in the future going to tie into every episode that we do. Reading this book added onto the mental framework that I built for myself, uh, yeah, which yeah. I was very happy with. And so um, I think it's a very good book. I think it's something that actually everyone should read. But I also believe that everyone should listen to our first episode of this series because I think these are fundamental. Like understanding the world you live in is important to be able to make the correct choices. To be free, I guess, because that's that's Mm. in the end what what it's all about. Anyway, so I recommend this book to anyone. And I think (laughs) 
like I was going to say anyone who is interested in the economy, but I believe that everyone should be interested into the economy because of the influence that it has on your life. So yeah, actually everyone should probably read this because as far as economics goes, probably one of the best and easiest to understand explanations of all that stuff. Yeah. My personal understanding came a very small part from what I learned at the university for six years. The major part came from watching tons of YouTube videos about all different stuff, finance, economy, and all that jazz. That's where the main part came from. But I think this book digests quite a lot of it down into a very easy to listen to five hours, I think, uh, in the audio format. Mm. And yet, written yeah, book isn't book. that long either. It's yeah. a nice read. All right, so enough praising the guy. Because uh, there's some things I didn't agree with in the book. There's some things I did agree with. So let's talk about our takeaways. Sam, sure. what did you take away? My biggest takeaway was, I guess, what we spoke about Ryan, in the last episode, of, which is quite related into your framework around the exchange value of everything. And that basically whatever unit of work you do has a unit of value that you can be exchanged for another good or service. And that money became like the exchange currency by which any good then has a label of value, which you can then exchange for other services or goods to have in your life. And that is kind of the first initial building block of what like economies are based on to kind of grasp. Mm. If I understand you correctly, so money is a way to track value. Yeah, to track value and to have the things that you want in your life, be them goods or services or to get paid for the things that you're providing to then get more goods and services because obviously you can't be a farmer and a baker and a butcher and a car maker and a laptop maker etc you kind of need to specialize in doing something by which you then make money which then allows you to buy the other goods and services etc mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. why you can then have economies where people are able to make planes and do all these things that provide us with the things that we enjoy and mm -hmm. healthcare, etc. And mm -hmm. he has a nice story within the book where he talks about how these markets kind of created themselves and different forms of currency would happen in like prisoner of war camps where they got delivered stuff mm -hmm. by the Red Cross. And initially they started trading coffee mm -hmm. as like the main unit of exchange. So like whatever else you wanted, you could sort of buy some chocolate with an amount of coffee or you could get someone to do something for you. And that kind of worked for a bit, but then it sort of became an issue. And it quickly, in in most cases like this, it's always ended up being cigarettes. And the same with like within prisons and stuff, where mm -hmm. you can basically buy a chocolate bar of someone with five cigarettes or more. And like, it's just interesting the way it ends up being something that is small enough to like carry around. It is still has a use, like it always has demand and people using it. And, um, it there was something else and i forgot what the other point was good yeah durability yeah storing so it's not going to get wiped out overnight mm -hmm. but then it's kind of interesting that the winners are the ones that didn't smoke <laughs> more because mm. they get their general rations of cigarettes but they've always got like cool 20 cigarettes a day for free whereas the people that smoke 20 cigarettes a day are kind of don't have any like value being created for them like automatically mm -hmm. each day which mm -hmm. uh does kind of suck yeah, I really, really liked that example of the prisoner of war camp because the author actually described a few things. But I want to touch upon what you just said, where people that don't smoke have an advantage. Mm. Um, and I think this actually, in general, is something that's true in real life as well, where 
people always or you always hear like uh, money should be rolling. You know, you have this thing. Yeah. You, if you have money, you should spend it. And that is, if people spend their money, it's good for the economy. But if you don't spend your money, if you're the only one not spending your money, that's actually good for you. Yeah. So basically, we can be pretty sure that not everyone in the world will be listening to this podcast so we can safely entrust our listeners with the secret, sacred knowledge that if you spend less than you produce or generate value-wise, then you will build a store of value. And if you then are smart with the way you store your value, then at some point you'll be free because the value that you've stored will be enough to consume for the rest of your life. And then no one will be able to tell you what the hell you should do. And you can just, you'll have, as they call it, fuck you money. So uh, if you have a boss that's a douchebag, you can tell them to go screw themselves and you can just peace out. Yeah. So anyway, the key is it's always better to consume as little as you can, especially when you don't need it. Anyway, so, but that's one good example that I found when you talk about, you know, people that don't smoke have advantages when cigarettes are being used as money. Well, other concepts to explain are inflation and deflation, which are kind of mm. complex um, in a way. But just imagine you have a prisoner of war camp and everyone has cigarettes and there are, let's say, a thousand cigarettes going around and people are basically exchanging chocolates. For example, uh, the price of chocolates is, let's say, you can buy one chocolate bar for five cigarettes. Now, the question is, imagine that suddenly a new truckload of cigarettes gets dumped in the courts of the prison of war camp or in the prison, and suddenly there's a thousand extra cigarettes in supply. What happens to the price of chocolates? Sam? The price of chocolate goes up a lot. Guess in a lot in cigarettes, right? Yes. Exactly. So there are more cigarettes. And let's say that the cigarettes are equally divided. So everyone suddenly has twice as many cigarettes. Then suddenly people will be willing to pay more for the chocolates. Yeah, yeah. So suddenly someone that had a lot of chocolate and not much cigarettes is kind of wealthy. Whereas someone that was storing all their cigarettes and just sold it for chocolate is like suddenly lost half their money basically because it's worth exactly. half as much. Yeah, exactly. Because if you had, let's say, 50 cigarettes, with those 50 cigarettes, at some point in time, buy 10 bars of chocolate. But the moment the thousand new cigarettes came into circulation, the money supply effectively doubled, which means that you can only buy five chocolate bars in theory. I mean, it's not going to be perfect. Well, in this yeah. case, it's going to be actually. But indeed, the amount of value that you consume with the value that you've stored in cigarettes actually reduced. And so this is very easy. Well, this is the same what's happening in, in the economy today. So basically, central banks are printing extra money. And this results in you know money becoming less. And so they aim for a inflation rate of 2% each year. So they want the value of money to decrease by 2%. So they want everything to become 2% more expensive each year because that will motivate people to spend money. Because in the end, economists want people to spend money in order to keep the economy rolling. And so... If the inflation rate is about 2%, that means that everything becomes 2% more expensive each year and that will motivate people just enough so they they don't postpone purchases too much. Mm. So if you need a new car and you know that the money that you have now is going to be, be able to buy a lower quality car next year, you might as well buy the good quality car this year, etc. that make sense, Stan? It did make sense. I do feel like it's a bit more clouded than I'd like it to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Listen... Want it to be like simpler than the book, and I'd be like, hmm, reading the book might be easier. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's clear that I don't fully understand it because uh, otherwise I would be able to explain it more simpler or easier, which actually is a compliment for uh, Varoufakis, who clearly understands his shit well. Because if he only needed nine days to write a book, which is really comprehensible, mm. 
it's uh, it's pretty good. Um, just one Definitely. more point that he also uh, makes, and and that is deflation. So you have the inverse of inflation is deflation, and so he imagines a scenario where there's a big bombing on the prisoner of war camp, and everyone, especially the smokers, start smoking up all their cigarettes because they're scared they're gonna die. And so if you're gonna die, you might as well consume all the nicotine you can because that mm. feels good. And so by the end of that night, people are still alive, but the number of cigarettes has been cut by 10. So instead of 1,000 cigarettes, you suddenly have 100. And so at that point, chocolates becomes cheaper. So you will need fewer cigarettes to buy the same amount of chocolates. And that is deflation. That is something that economists want to avoid, especially central bankers. It's their job to avoid deflation because mm. if there's deflation, supposedly people are going to postpone all their purchases and then the economy is going to come to a grinding halt and that's going to be a disaster yeah which is one of the issues around capitalism and why you're just constantly seeking growth and that's a problem for the world with a place of finite resources and stuff and where we mm. get into all the other issues which is mm -hmm. interesting i also like the point he made around sort of finding the market value as in what we just spoke around is sort of the value of the exchange always always changing but like the market decides the value of something and that is something that kind of just comes up often in economics of that's why you have trading of stocks and shares and things and people try and buy a, a stock when it's undervalued because they think it's going to like go up in value to find its true value etc or the opposite of it's going to be trading at like a hundred times its sort of profit levels and it's sort of overvalued in the market and people will short it because they think it's going to sort of reach its true value where it's going to be much lower than it currently is and in the prisoner of war camps they found that things initially when people didn't know that much like when there wasn't communication people were trading stuff between different areas like the italians were paying more for coffee and the british people mm. wanted more tea and people were finding these sort of incorrections in the market value between different areas and they, they were initially able to make profit on that arbitrage sort of options but then as people mm. saw what was going on the value of tea and coffee became standardized which, which is just like mm. a nice enclosed way of sharing that with like a few items, mm. which then sort of makes an analogy to the whole world <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but it shows you how like trade routes happen with buying something in China that's cheaper to then sell it over in Africa, etc. with the whole trade routes of history and, and uh -huh. now still the same. I found his, his use of the prisoner of war camp super useful as a tool to explain difficult concepts in like a very small, tight-knit community or economy because indeed like in the end what merchants do and used to do is they purchase stuff where it's abundant and mm. they bring it to a place where it's in short supply that's very basically what merchants are doing and so in the end the only thing they're doing is arbitraging so yeah. they're finding inefficiencies in the market and inefficiencies in let's say the 17th century sense was you know location it was very easy to get pepper for example spices in india in, in India, there were a shit ton of spices, but in Europe, there were none. And so they were in huge demand and people were willing to pay a lot of money for pepper in Britain, for example. And so you could make a fortune by just buying pepper cheaply in India and bringing that pepper and selling it to the markets in Britain. And so in the end, merchants are the old arbitragers. And now, of course, the arbitrage is because markets are becoming more and more inefficient. There are fewer and fewer arbitrage opportunities. Yeah. One interesting fact that the book made me realize. So first is the economy. When did we start speaking about the economy? So let's go back in time. Let's say 
15,000 years, let's say Sam and I were, were living then, we were in a tribe together, walking around, sleeping in caves, trying to hunt animals in Europe or in Britain or whatever, gathering fruits and berries and all that stuff. And so at that point, there was no such thing as the economy until the moment that humans started becoming sedentary. Because the moment we started becoming sedentary, we started to cultivate grains. And one of the cool things about grains and the key difference between grains and meat or vegetables or fruits, for example, is they don't spoil that fast. So you can actually keep grains for quite a long amount of time. And so only from that point was there a thing called a surplus being created in the economy. Let's say you find a mammoth, you kill a mammoth, you have a shit ton of meat. That meat is not really a surplus, although it can feed your tribe and probably five other tribes as well, because it will spoil after a few days and then it's unedible. However, if you're able to cultivate wheat on land, if you have too much wheat for your tribe, you can actually start selling that wheat to another tribe. And so from the moment people became sedentary and had food that was non-perishable or semi-perishable only, then at that point only was there talk of a surplus and could also start talking about the economy. Because only from that point, there was something you could trade and some record keeping to be done. And at that point, that writing was invented, that government, that armies were invented, because government does not add real value. Government is there to manage a group of people army is there to protect a group of people but again all of this would not be able to work if that group of people didn't have a surplus of value created does that make sense sam did i explain that well yeah yeah i, I like that <laughs> certainly makes sense <laughs> Thanks. In... so I, I did understand it slightly <laughs> <laughs> for sure it was, yeah thanks man yeah i came across pretty obviously really is in when you're just living sort of whatever you have like parishes it's, there's no real like long-term value of it it's sort of you can give it away it doesn't really matter i mean you can obviously like i was saying earlier is in you kind of get more bespoke stuff now in the current world where like someone's making planes someone's making components of those planes etc and you're able to exchange that for whatever the hell you want in your life whereas before you had like a specific component in the tribe but you kind of just had to all just work together and you didn't really become wealthy as such you just sort of did the foraging and stuff maybe someone understood more about health and help people and someone was better at hunting and other people were better at cooking but as a unit you just kind of existed whereas as soon as you can sort of stay in one place and someone can like farm a bunch of things then you can have space for someone else to be a baker somewhere else and then you start making towns and all this other stuff and mm -hmm. economies start to happen so mm -hmm. yeah surplus and <laughs> being able surplus, to grow more than you need important. or something yeah yeah, and in the end, that's what it's all about, right? In our last episode, mm. we talked about your job is to create value and the surplus of value that you generate is actually what you can take for yourself. So let's say if you take some kind of item as a resource and you turn that into something more valuable, let's say that I'm an artist and I take wood and I turn that into wooden sculptures, the surplus that I create from the point until it becomes a sculpture is actually my added value to society and so in the end society is all about creating more and more and more surplus and so maybe we can touch upon that later well we should touch upon that later so he says that our profit-seeking world is actually what is killing the earth and nature and the environment i agree that it's the current system that is and so he proposes some solutions and i think there's other solutions that might work as well mm. that are more realistic or feasible goes nicely into sort of 
talking about living off grid where you have like your solar energy Mm -hmm. and you farm your food and you just like exist (laughs) purely to Mm -hmm. just keep yourself existing and (laughs) that's kind of nice and there is something a lot of people i think have noticed over the last year who've started growing vegetable patches and things that it's really enjoyable growing your own food and (laughs) Mm. feeling like you're kind of sort of sustaining yourself in some ways and um there is something very natural and human about that as a feeling Mm. and kind of in the same way that like it's weirdly nice to like stare at a fire or look at the sea and that kind of thing it's just something like within you that's a bit like hmm i've grown these strawberries as opposed to got them from sainsbury's that just makes you feel a little bit more happy about your life and and like there's something correct going on in the world and uh, it tastes better right yeah yeah in some magic way even if they taste exactly the same if you made them they still taste better yeah yeah no fully agree i think there's definitely a case to be made for living off the grid but for me if you decide to go live in the middle of nowhere and have no contact or no economic interaction with the rest of society you're basically stepping away from the game of capitalism which is fine yeah but you're just not partaking in it anymore i actually think that a lot of people would be a lot happier if they did that mm. i commend people who do it i think is great and honestly <laughs> yeah i mean this is a very far tangent but i've said to hannah that i i think an ideal place for me to live long term would be some relatively small community that is almost you know self-sustaining so you would obviously need some services that are like for example electricity like you're not going to generate your own electricity actually now with solar panels and stuff that might be not true anymore but let's say running water and all that stuff so there's some basic necessities that i would like but if you're able to have someone who has let's say some cattle so you have some constant supply of meat and then Mm. you have lots of vegetable farmers and then you have a very tight-knit community where you hang out together if you're enough you can like have a little school educate the kids that way and perhaps you know people can still have normal jobs but they would come home to or work from home from a place where you know doors are always open and everyone knows each other and everyone hangs out around a campfire at every every evening i think that's something i'd probably be very happy in you know Cool. So uh, <laughs> the next show, Nick is going to become a born again Christian and join a cult. And <laughs> no, no, no. no. I, I want I want to do it with interesting people. So, a listener, if you're in, hey, give me a call. We'll born again Christians are very interesting. That's not um, just them. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But... I'm not saying. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean they're not interesting. I'm, I'm saying that's yeah. I would do it from a probably more from a Buddhist perspective than a Christian. Yes. You know where yes, know. you know you disconnect from all everything that needs your attention. You would do lots of meditation and all that stuff. Yeah, anyway, so that like was that. my very long tangents. But let's talk a bit more about the book. So one of the very interesting parts that he talks about is the creation. So the point at which we actually went from feudalism, which happened around the Middle Ages, to capitalism. And that happened in Britain in the, around the 16th century, if I'm not mistaken. And that was the point where both labor markets and land markets got created. So before that, if you were, very broadly speaking, there were two types of people. There were the lords and the kings and the counts and whatever. So all the the people that owned land, basically, they were the tiny minority and they owned large pieces of land. And then the other group of people were serfs. And so they were just, you know, your average citizens living on the land of the Lord and they were working for the Lord. So they were cultivating food, grains, wheat, all that stuff for the Lords. And each year they would pay the lords for the pleasure of working on their farms and if they had created enough wheat that they gathered they could receive a bit more uh, which they could use to eat and perhaps to exchange for tools or clothing or something else that they would like 
So that's pretty much a feudal system. And there was actually no market for labor. So no one was being paid for labor. You were just working as a serf. You belonged, as it were, to a lord. And also lords didn't think about selling serfs or they didn't think about selling land. Mm. It was just not an option. You were born into your ownership of land. And the only way you would gather or lose land was probably by conquest or perhaps by politics and marriage. But there was no such thing as putting a monetary value to land. And so this changed when the lords in Britain realized that the land that was currently being used to cultivate wheat, for example, to make food, would way more efficiently be used to have some sheep on there. Because those sheep actually could be used to gather wool, and that wool would be sold for a shit ton of money around the world. And so what all those lords decided to do was to, instead of cultivating food, so wheat and all that stuff, they would say, okay... Serfs, I don't need that many of you. So instead of having 100 serfs per square kilometer, and I'm just saying a number here could be completely wrong, they would only need 10 because it's way easier to have sheep because sheep run around, they eat grass, and that's everything you need. And the only job of these serfs would be to share the sheep and gather the wool. And that way the lords would make way more money. But what happens to the 90 other serfs? So these 90 other serfs, would suddenly they were out of land, so they didn't have a lord that would let them live on their land. They didn't have any income. They didn't have any food because they used to work the lands to gather food and they would use that to eat, obviously, and then exchange for everything else they needed. And so they were actually homeless and they were incomeless and they were deep shit. And so at that point, they went to the nearest village and they said, please, I'll do anything you want as long as you give me some food and some shelter. And that was when the labor markets started. And so, so that's labor markets and then the real estate market, because the lords actually realized that you could calculate the return on investment of land, right? So if they had a piece of land, let's say one square kilometer would have, let's say, 100 sheep. Again, <laughs> I have no clue if that's even remotely correct. But those who give a certain amount of wool would be worth so much on the free market. And so they could actually start putting a number on how much they wanted to rent out the landfall because they had so much land that they were willing to rent it out to entrepreneurs or these previous serfs who would decide to start their own companies and start herding some sheep on the land that they would borrow from the landlords. And that's where the real estate markets emerged. And yeah, we still see the remainders of that today because today there's still a real estate market where you have a piece of land that can generate income by whatever you decide to put on it. Um, And same with labor. In general, uh, your time is worth money and most people exchange their time for money or their labor for money. Mm. Was that interesting, Sam? Did I talk way too much? A a little long. Ah, sorry. (laughs) But I think it it sort of tells the story. It was an interesting time back then. And um, mm-hmm. it was kind of absurd the way people were sort of just born into like owning stuff. And if you go back even further, like around by the whole history of slavery with like the Romans and the Greeks and stuff, mm-hmm. it's just a strange concept. So if you look at like back, back from, from like especially just groups of people and then kind of becoming a more tribal to the point where it then got to the point where people were owning land and stuff, was only with the surplus of things did you then start having that. And um, I think he also made a nice point that linked into it around why the British colonized Australia instead of Aborigines invading England. And it was because Mm -hmm. they had the fertile land and they were creating surplus. They were sort of organized around the ways that they could have created all this stuff. And they had like the economic power to then build these extra things and go invading other countries, whereas the Aborigines Mm -hmm. were just these sort of tribes wandering around the land, living off it in a sort of just 
sustainable hand-to-mouth environment and mm-hmm. had no broader aspirations beyond these things and that kind of fits into what you kind of explained quite nicely and it's sort of a lot of the book sort of makes sense other parts of the book as it sort of as it gets explained along it's quite nice mm-hmm. yeah so many examples and I, I agree so you make your great points and i think it brings us to kind of the conclusion of the book because if you read the book and if you look what kind of politics he's into is he's very progressive he's very left-wing he never uses the word socialism but if you think mm. about what he says it's clear that he is a socialist he refers to marx as the writer of one of his favorite books and apparently but i didn't know that because i haven't read marx a lot of the points that he makes is something that marx said as well and it's pretty clear that he's very socialist and in favor of like a socialist mechanism and he's not too fond of the free market i mean the, the point that you just made of why did britain invade australia and not the other way around and that was because britain was creating more surplus i think that answers the question why i personally don't believe that's moving away from capitalism yeah my point is that let's say that one country becomes communist even in the perfect way i think you'll see that less surplus will be created because of Mm. the incentive structure and i think incentives are very key in any economy and skin in the game or a bad skin in the game incentive mechanism is actually the cause of so many issues in our world today and so yeah i don't believe that something communist or socialistic will be one sustainable and two i think we'll see the same where capitalist countries will advance faster and more than communist countries and so in the end you'll have the same dynamic with britain and australia where the ones that had more surplus will be the ones being victorious over the ones that didn't in the end that makes sense yeah that makes sense but my only issue there is that you said that this is the point that you wanted to end on and we did discuss the one other thing before the show of what we wanted to mention around the points he makes between experiential value and exchange value and that there mm-hmm. are some things that you sort of can't buy and if you try and put a price on them it's actually a bad thing and could you I, give an example yeah so in the book he talks about the value of sort of sitting down with your friends to have a meal together and i think his daughter was sailing with this guy who dropped something in the sea and she um dives in and gets it for him and then he's like very happy and it's just like a very nice moment for them and something and um mm-hmm. says so like how weird would it be if someone tried to pay your friend for sitting with you and having dinner with you or if this guy had like sort of said like okay cool you're going to be my person that just dives off the side of the boat every sort of other day when i drop something and i'll give you like 20p for that or something it just wouldn't actually be very nice and sort of takes away the actual value of it or um and it's just some things in life that you can't really buy with money you can't make someone love you you can't like do these kind of things you sort of just they just kind of exist and understanding that there's value in the world that isn't just exchangeable on a money side it's quite interesting and how do you create those kind of things of value and relationships and such is interesting and Mm -hmm. yeah i just thought it was like a nice point to make and certainly something that i've kind of have struggled with with some of your friends where like they can't maybe afford to do something with you but it's kind of weird for you to pay for them but on my side it's like well i'm perfectly happy for you to come and visit me and i'll pay for your train fare because it's nice to see mm. you but then they kind of feel like oh i don't, don't want to be them like spending your money on something and mm-hmm. it's odd and then mm-hmm. kind of annoyed that like well why have you gone to a coffee shop and bought a coffee that you don't need for the past 10 days when that could have been your train fare <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of stupid yeah 
Yeah, I agree. Um, the whole experiential value against exchange value, because that's what he's talking about. I haven't fully wrapped my head around it because my initial thought was that calling them different types of value for me felt unnecessary because mm. I feel like they're both value. So let's take the example of his daughter diving in the sea to return something that someone lost, that someone dropped. And it would be weird if that person would say, you know, I'll pay you five euros for it. Because basically what happens is if that person asks his daughter, like, oh, could you do this for me? You know, I'll be super grateful. You'll be my hero, right? If mm. she does it then at that point, what does she get from it? The thing that she gets is she gets the feeling of, okay, I'm a hero. I helped someone out out of the good of my heart. And I have other people around me that saw that I did something for someone else without expecting anything in return. And that made me feel good about myself. And so that is the value that she receives at that point when she's not being paid. Now, the moment that she gets paid, let's say five euros, the feeling of being the hero and doing something without thinking of yourself for someone else actually disappears, right? Mm. So when she gets paid, people around her will see that more as an economic transaction and she won't be the hero anymore. And so the feeling of being the hero is worth more than the five euros. Yeah. Now, we could repeat this process, but instead of offering five euros, we could offer 10 euros. And perhaps the value of being seen as a heroine is still higher than euros. But we can mm. keep playing this game up until a point where you can actually quantify in euros yeah, everyone has a price the value. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's why I'm not sure if I would like make this kind of distinction. I haven't wrapped my head around it. Yeah, I but it's a weird missing. one though, because it then does just interrupt other things as well. Uh, as in once you then put a value on it in monetary terms, it's then hard to like not do it for money in the future. As in like, if he does pay you 50 euros, you're then mm -hmm. never going to dive off the side to go and help him and stuff. And then we can go into like some deep rabbit holes around like paying for sex and stuff like that. And you're like, well, why do people mm -hmm. do this? And <laughs> and what if the person that you're paying for sex actually kind of fancies you and would do it anyway? And that's kind of odd. Or maybe a less taboo topic was, is like I had um, a mentor from Techstars who's a business coach and she's ended up giving me a lot more business coaching than like initially she was kind of like, oh, so maybe you could pay for this. But then we ended up agreeing a non-payment thing but then she just like become my mate and just really likes hanging out with me and so she just carries on coaching me anyway because she sort of enjoys that and that's bloody mm -hmm. lovely but it's kind of like a sort of half awkward one and obviously I'd love to get to the point where like we've raised lots of money and I could just pay her like double her fees for all the fact mm -hmm. that she's like giving me so much help but she's obviously not expecting it and it's just nice because she's my mate but mm -hmm. if you are someone that is doing a role that is something that you just enjoy anyway and such as like coaching or something, it's probably something you want to do because it's your passion. Same as like you coach CrossFit kind of thing. It's something you kind of want to spend more time doing and it's just nice to find a way to get paid for doing your passion. Mm. But then putting a price on that can be very hard, especially when you're starting out and, and mm. stuff. And yeah, I think it's a thing that a lot of people do struggle with trying to commercialize mm. these things. Mm. Yeah, this brings me actually to my final point that I wanted to make. So one of the issues that I see in, in capitalistic society today is that not enough value is correctly taken into account. Mm. Let's talk about a plant that produces plastic, for example. Let's say Tupperware plants. So they take in plastic pellets and they turn it into Tupperware boxes, right? Let's say that each year they take in $1 million worth of plastic pellets and then they produce Tupperware boxes and those Tupperware boxes are worth, let's say, $2 million to make it easy to count. So they added $1 million of value. Right now, that's actually the profit that they make. If we just don't forget about all the marketing over at Costa all that shit. So they make 1 million just for turning plastic into boxes, right? However, 
what do they also do? They have like emissions from, you know, all the machinery that they have. And they probably have some waste plastic that they either dump somewhere into a river landfill or whatever, or that gets, you know, vaporized into the atmosphere. And so my issue is, I think, and I feel like that could be one main big solution towards, you know, making a efficient capitalistic society is just taking these things into account. And so in the end, you should think about value for society and also for future generations. And so mm. my feeling is that, for example, oil should be like taxed way more because... Yeah, definitely. The, yeah, I mean, because you're taking value away from future generations and that's something that currently is not, for me, correctly taken into account. And taking that should be harsh. And, and so adding cost if they're going to have to pay for like freak weather events or carbon capture or something which is just taking exactly. energy purely just to do this thing uh-huh. so it is literally a debt that they're growing yes so value destruction for the environment and for human society as a whole should be taken into account in a capitalistic system and i think the principle is perfect like if you can accurately calculate or take into account value destruction in the production i think that's going to solve so many issues yeah um, in the world today Definitely, but that's where you have a who is going to adopt that first when if one country adopts it, they're going to massively hinder themselves compared to all other countries unless the UN decides it globally like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is the price of burning oil, etc. And the whole world needs to agree to that. Otherwise, if someone doesn't, they just have an advantage and Mm -hmm. it becomes kind of annoying. But that is kind of exactly what's needed in the world for it to actually work. And if bigger things happen if going wrong you could actually sort of see it being a forcing function to make us do it which is why maybe climate change is a good thing it might actually force us to actually sort our shit out as a species Mm. to then work out how to work properly so we've kind of been a bit like lost you know can't see the wood for the trees when you're dealing with your own country and your own personal things Mm. you're not really thinking Mm. at like a species level and we do need Mm. to sort of change the way our incentives work to reach that Good. I've always said, best thing that could happen to humanity is to have suddenly have aliens. Then we'll start working together. Then suddenly it's not going to be us and them. Well, it's going to be us and them, but it's going to be us humans and them aliens instead of yeah. you know us Americans and them Europeans and all that shit. All right. Anyway, that's all of the points that I wanted to make. Is something you would still like to discuss, or uh, otherwise you can give your rating. Cool. I could happily debate intricacies of what point like things become weird on payment stuff. Because think about like. Currently, I'm dealing with things like free interns versus paid for mm. interns versus mm. my business partner who didn't get paid for a while, but then did things and he's now leaving the company. Like, how much do I pay him when actually he had a great experience being involved in the startup and he's now worth a lot more for the future rest of his life in terms of his learnings? Mm. And basically, like the first few months, could we just call that like a free internship anyway? Because that's way better than what an intern would have had. And it's better than doing a degree, which he would have paid for. And there's so many different ways you could value these this stuff. And it's really hard <laughs> to sort of <laughs> tell someone yep. exactly what they are were you, uh Are you asking me on for tips for how to sell that, you know? Mm. To, to how mm. to sell that to him? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> you're an intern, right? And uh, it hasn't cost you any money to get this uh, degree in doing a startup. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to earn so much more for the rest of your life because of this. So maybe... Mm-hmm. Uh, you could owe us five thousand pounds for the next two <laughs> years. We'll put it. You're on a twenty-year payment plan. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that could yeah. be fun. No, I think this is a difficult one. I obviously don't know all the ins and outs of everything that uh, transpired, but in a way, I agree that there's some things uh, you should personally also take into account when you take a job. The value that you get is not only what you get paid, right? Mm. Um, 
it's also like if you have a great mentor, if you're learning some great skills, some very marketable skills, if you're building a great network, all that stuff is worth something. And sometimes it makes sense to forego a higher paying opportunity because they're just paying you in money to go for something that will either learn you more or give you access to better people or even is something that makes you happy. Like if you have a job that you like, that's also worth something. And these are all very hard to quantify, obviously. But yeah, I think they are all quantifiable. And because so many things are not yet quantifiable, I think that's one of the main reasons why capitalism... Because, yeah, I still need to think about this, but that's what I like about this book. It yeah. has accelerated my thinking, give me more points to think about. It's a very relevant addition, actually, I think, to the book's whole discussion, really, in terms of where do you get your value from and what is the value of money in exchange for the other things and how much value is the mm -hmm. other stuff that you're creating. And mm -hmm. um, suddenly I interviewed the founder of Siri, and he said, like, he never took a pay rise. He always basically went into a different job where he'd just be learning more and was always back at the, mm. the bottom because he just wanted to optimize for learning and growth mm. and, and experience and, like, a network and this kind of stuff. He never really went for salary. But mm. um, obviously, you need to have enough money to be able to do that. Mm. And so that's generally Still, been that's my so philosophy. Impressive. But it's um, mm -hmm. important. So Sam, what was the value of this book for you out of 10? I would put it as a 9.5, maybe. Wow. I think like, it's one of those books I would definitely tell anyone to read, uh, even if they were good at it. Like you studied economics and you valued it or someone that has like a zero in the understanding of the economy would still really gain from it. And it's also just very readable and enjoyable. So... Yeah, I feel like everyone should read this book, as we mentioned. I think it's one of those books where you you sort of feel that you know everything that it tells you, but it all suddenly makes a lot more sense, hmm. if that makes sense mm -hmm. Fully as agree. an explanation. Yeah. And um, it was just great. It makes you go, oh, cool. All of these things I've seen in the world, this is why they're like they are, and this makes sense, and, and I'm pretty happy. So for that, I thought it was good. I'd rather reread this book than reading some other books that go deep into stuff that I could probably forget about. Hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, if I was to read... I haven't read the rest of the books in the, in the series yet, so I might completely change my opinions. But I do mm. feel that like this might be like my go-to single book of like economies. Yeah, what are they again? <laughs> and they'd be like, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. All right. But I really liked Interesting. it. Cool. So for me, I also think it's a great read. One of the things that kind of annoyed me was, and this is probably very personal because <laughs> like his views on capitalism and conservatism progressiveness and all that stuff are slightly different from mine so i'm more of a free market economist and he's more of a socialist and that's why i sometimes didn't agree with his views although he's very eloquent in trying to convince me so it did make me think but i found it almost too opinionated that being said like he's not even trying to not be opinionated right he's writing a letter to his daughter so yeah i mean i'm, <laughs> I'm living giving like pros and cons here anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with an eight I was initially going to go less, but then I realized that this book was never supposed to be like a handbook for anyone, you know? It's more his views, mm. like how he would explain stuff to his daughter. And to be honest, I noticed, so I have three sisters, and I noticed that my two youngest sisters, especially, although being raised in a well-off family, they look at things differently. And it could be because they, both of them haven't started working yet, but they're mm. both extremely like socialist slash almost communist. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see if that changes. I just want to say that I think this is a really good book for them as well because they're going to really like it, you know, because <laughs> echoes their worldview. But 
So yeah, an eight for me. So yeah, that, that rounds up the episode. I think this book is a may read. I, I wouldn't call it a must read. I think there's more essential books out there. But I think it's... Um, I was talking about why Buddhism is true, Sam. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, yeah, exactly. Good that. <laughs> That's even more, even more important. But anyway, yeah. uh, good book. Do recommend to everyone. So for next week or next episode, we are reading The Intelligent Investment, one of the most Lindy books on investing there is, written by, I think, Benjamin Graham, who was the mentor of none, none other than uh, Warren Buffett. So a very Lindy book. And yeah, that's going to be more in depth on stocks. So this was all very high level, very conceptual, very philosophical. And that book is going to be way more practical. And it's going to teach you, if you want to invest in stocks, uh, how you should approach that. All right. So I um, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to talk to us, feel free to come hang out in Reason, which is Sam's app, which is where he and I listen to our podcasts. And you should probably also listen to this one. Highly recommend it. It's easy to talk to us and uh, let us know what you think. Thank you very much and see you next episode. Cheers. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating and share with your friends. If you'd like to ask us a question or give us a comment, feel free to join us on Reason. Reason is Sam's startup that is building a social podcasting app. It is a place where Sam and I listen to podcasts and share ideas and insights. It'd be great if you would hang out with us there. Thanks again and speak to you in the next episode. Cheers.